Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. There we read, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be turned forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In the previous sermon, we saw that the division of one part of a covenanted nation from another part did not make null or void the national covenant made with God when the two were one political entity. Perhaps someone might further object that the reason why Israel consisting of the ten tribes was still bound by the national covenant made with God at Mount Sinai even though Israel under Jeroboam declared its political independence from Judah was because Israel's separation from Judah was unlawful. Israel did not have just cause to divide the kingdom promised to David and to his heirs. The mere threatening words of Rehoboam to Israel on one occasion were not sufficient cause to divide a covenanted nation. And further, there were no steps taken by Jeroboam or Israel to seek to resolve their differences with King Rehoboam after having heard Rehoboam's foolish threat. Whereas, so the objection goes, the 13 colonies had just cause to declare their political independence from Britain due to the many, not just one, but many obstinate crimes and not just mere words, but crimes perpetrated by King George III against them over many years and not just simply uttered in one day. Therefore, the objector argues the national covenant Britain had made with God, namely the Solemn Legan Covenant in 1643, 
no longer bound the 13 colonies once they declared their independence from Britain. In other words, this objection states that where political division occurs that is unjust, as in the case of Israel and Judah, a national covenant made with God continues to bind that political entity that has declared its political independence. But where political division occurs that is just, as in the case of the 13 colonies from Great Britain, a national covenant does not continue to bind that new nation that has declared its independence. That's the objection. What do we say to this? Well, let's briefly respond to this objection before moving on to consider our text for this Lord's Day. First of all, a covenant made with God consisting of moral duties, whether it be a national covenant, a marital covenant, a familial covenant, an ecclesiastical covenant, or a commercial covenant, does not cease to bind all of the parties involved in that covenant simply because a division occurs between those parties, regardless of whether the division is unjust or whether the division is just. If the covenant is made with God, if God is a party to that covenant, simply because the entity, the group, splits up, divides, the covenant that made with God continues to bind the members that were a part of that entity because they were moral duties that were involved in the covenant. The covenant was made with God first and foremost and he will hold us to our covenants made with him regardless of the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of others to that same covenant. Vows and covenants made with God must be paid, for God will require it. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, there we read, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, notice it doesn't, indicate whether it's merely a personal vow, an ecclesiastical vow, a commercial vow, a national vow, what type of vow it is. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. So likewise we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, you can just simply look that up in, at your leisure. Second, I would have you consider this analogy and state it in the form of a question. Will a son be released from a baptismal covenant made by his parents to God to trust, love, and obey Christ all the days of his life because his parents miserably abused him for many years and sought to take his life and because he lawfully fled for his life to another country never to see them again 
and even legally changed his name. If the son renounces his covenantal duties to God, renounces that covenant because his parents have done so by turning their, their backs upon God and abusing their son, will he not also be guilty of covenant breaking if he turns his back upon his baptismal covenant made with God? Of course he will. His parents' covenant breaking does not destroy his own covenanted obligation and duty that he owes to God. He cannot blame his parents who broke covenant with God and who abused him and from whom he had to flee for his life. He cannot blame his parents for his own covenant breaking. It states in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, and again I won't read the passage, but simply refer you to it. But there in that context, those who had been led into captivity and uh, into various lands, as well as those who still remained in Jerusalem, were seeking to blame their forefathers for their own covenant breaking. They were in effect saying that uh, our forefathers, the proverb goes, uh, so it, it stated this way, our forefathers ate sour grapes and our teeth therefore are uh, affected by that. It's affected our own teeth. And so it's our forefathers' fault for our covenant breaking and what's come upon us. Well, Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, says that if the fathers sin, they're responsible for their sin and their covenant breaking. If the son or the children of the covenant sin and break covenant, they cannot blame their fathers for their own covenant breaking. They are responsible before God for their own covenant breaking. Likewise, we see in Hosea chapter 4, verses 15 through 17 there, which is speaking of the, uh, the uh, kingdoms of Judah and Israel, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the two tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel had already departed, had already broken uh, grossly and habitually God's national covenant made with them in which they made with God at Mount Sinai and God appeals to uh, Judah through Hosea and says simply because Israel has sinned and Samaria the capital city has forsaken me and worshipped other gods Judah, don't you go after them. Judah, don't you follow their example. In other words, again, there is, even in that situation, though Judah might say that it was unlawful what Israel did in separating and dividing the kingdom, Judah could not blame, could not blame Israel for its own covenant breaking. It was responsible for breaking covenant. So likewise, the unfaithfulness 
bringing us back to uh, the actual objection. The unfaithfulness of King George III or his cruel treatment of the 13 colonies may have allowed them to flee for their lives from his tyranny and may have allowed the 13 colonies to legally change their name from one of his majesty's dominions to the United States of America. But the tyranny of King George III or the declaration of the, the, their uh, independence from Great Britain did not allow the 13 colonies or the United States of America to break their covenant with God. That is, the Solemn League and Covenant. Just one other point I want to make before moving to our text. I would say likewise a lawful covenant made with God by a married couple. A married couple together enter into a covenant with God not to look at pornography. That covenant continues to bind the man and the woman even if the marriage lawfully is dissolved due to the unfaithfulness of one of the partners in the marriage. Likewise, a lawful covenant made with God by members of a church to worship God only in ways appointed in His Word continues to bind the individual parties to perform that covenanted duty even if the members lawfully leave that church for its unfaithfulness or even if that church dissolves so that there is no longer membership within that church. They cannot say simply because the church was unfaithful to the covenant that was made that they are freed from the covenant that was made. They cannot say simply because that church uh, dissolved that they as members at the time the covenant was made are free and released from the covenant that was made it being a lawful covenant a lawful declaration of independence from a covenanted entity or moral person does not terminate the covenant or the covenanted moral duties that the individual human parties owe to God himself when there is a, a lawful dissolution of a relationship between men, there may be no further, say, in the case of a marriage that is dissolved, of divorce, there may be no further uh, marital obligations to that human being. But if there was a covenant made with God while they were married and they both took the covenant, they cannot absolve themselves of that covenant simply because they no longer are married. Thus the Church of Scotland argued along exactly the same lines. The Church of Scotland argued that faithful Church of Scotland argued that the unfaithfulness of England, Ireland, or Scotland, the unfaithfulness of king or subjects, the unfaithfulness of church or state could not remove the covenant or the covenanted duties that individuals, families, church, or kingdom owed to God. For the solemn league and covenant was made first and foremost with God. And if political unions were dissolved, or ecclesiastical unions were dissolved, or familial unions were dissolved, 
or marital unions were dissolved, the covenant made with God could not be dissolved. The Lord would require it. I remind you of the words of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland as found in the Acts of General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland. The date is August the 6th. 1649 and pages 474 through 475 of the Acts. I alluded to this uh, quote in a previous sermon, but I think it bears repeating at this point simply to see how the faithful Church of Scotland argued this uh, case against such an objection. And I quote now, Although there were none in the one kingdom who did adhere to the covenant, that is the solemnly in covenant, yet thereby were not the other kingdom or any person in either of them absolved from the bond thereof, since in it we have not only sworn by the Lord, but also covenanted with him. It is not the failing of one or more that can absolve the other from their duty or tie to him. Besides the duties therein contained being in themselves lawful and the grounds of our tie thereunto moral, though the other do forget their duty, yet doth not their defection free us from that obligation which lies upon us by the covenant in our places and stations. And the covenant being intended and entered into by these kingdoms as one of the best means of steadfastness for guarding against declining times. It were strange to say that the backsliding of any should absolve others from the tie thereof, especially seeing our engagement therein is not only national, but also personal. Everyone with uplifted hands swearing by himself as it is evident by the tenor of the covenant. From these and other important reasons, it may appear that all these kingdoms joining together to abolish that oath by law, yet could they not dispense therewith. Much less can any of them, or any part in either of them, do the same. The dispensing with oaths have hitherto been abhorred as anti-Christian and never practiced and avowed by any but by that man of sin that is the Pope therefore those who take the same upon them as they join with him in his sin so must they expect to partake of his plagues well, we come now, that's the end of the quote, we come now to briefly consider our text for this Lord's Day in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. From a consideration of God's divorcement of Israel, as we see in Isaiah chapter 50, verse, uh, verse 1. Isaiah 50, verse 1. Just turn with me there briefly because this is kind of a background to our text. Isaiah 50, verse 1. I want you just to notice what is said here by the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, 
Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. With that bill of divorcement in the background and in our minds now as we approach the text before us, how can it be said that the national covenant or that covenanted uh, nation of Israel continued to exist as a covenanted nation after having been lawfully divorced by God. When a lawful divorce occurs, doesn't the marital covenant and marital obligations due to that particular spouse then end? In order to answer this question, we must seek to understand the nature of God's divorcement of Israel at this point. And we come then to the objection uh, that I'll read to you. This is the objection that we'll seek to answer from this particular text. The, The objection is this. Doesn't the fact that God gave to Israel a certificate or a bill of divorce indicate that the national covenant between God and Israel came to an end? I've already read the text at the very beginning of the sermon. I won't read it again. And so I'll just begin to expound now upon the text. Well, the simple answer to the question is no. The certificate of divorce does not bring to an end the national covenant between God and Israel. And we'll explain that in a moment. Let's consider our text at this point. As I've already indicated, the background to this text is in fact the matter of God's divorcement of Israel. As we just noted in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. The subject of God's being married to Israel, as herein stated in Isaiah chapter 62, would not have been an issue at all if the matter of her divorce was not under consideration. God gave to Israel a letter or a certificate of divorce because of Israel's gross, unrepentant, and habitual marital unfaithfulness to God himself, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. You might want to look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 as well, to the same effect, where it says there, This is Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. But what does that certificate of divorce mean? Does it mean that Israel was no longer God's covenanted people? Does it mean that the national covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai was made null and void? If so, then a national covenant made with God can be made null and void by the unfaithfulness of a kingdom or a nation. 
The context of Isaiah 62 is one of a future national restoration of Israel. Now, there may be some limited historical fulfillment of this passage in the return of God's people from captivity at the time of the decree of Cyrus, but only as a preview of greater things to come in the future when at the time of the millennium, Israel as a united nation will be restored unto the Lord, brought back into covenant, uh, faithful covenant uh, uh, keeping with the Lord. When this passage here in Isaiah 62 speaks of Zion and Jerusalem, as it does in verse 1, I do not think it is accurate to interpret these names as referring to the New Testament church composed of both Jews and Gentiles. For in Isaiah 62.2, the capital city of Jerusalem, that is the capital city of Judah, which is Jerusalem, seems clearly to be distinguished from Gentiles, from Gentile nations, and from Gentile kings, as they behold the gracious glory bestowed by God upon the undeserving covenanted nation of Israel you'll find in verse 2 these words, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. <coughs> you see, there are places in Scripture where the name Israel has indeed a, a spiritual significance. But we ought not to deny a future political national meaning to Israel when Israel or Jerusalem is distinguished within the same context from the Gentiles, from Gentile nations, and from Gentile kings, as we see here in Isaiah 62.2. I submit that Isaiah 62.4 helps us to understand what Israel's divorce meant. When Israel is restored in the future millennium, God says, She who was called forsaken shall be called Hephzibah. That is, my delight is in her. For we read in Isaiah 62, 4, The Lord delighteth in thee. And God also says the land of Israel which is called desolate shall be called Beulah that is married for thy land Isaiah 62 4 says for thy land shall be married. Also note dear ones that the bill of divorcement God gave to Israel was a cutting off of Israel from their land due to their unbelief and unfaithfulness to the marital covenant or national covenant. And that the restoration of Israel is a bringing of them back into their land 
or a marrying them to their land again in a state of faith in Christ in obedience to their national covenant which we find in Jeremiah 31 is called a new covenant not new because it's entirely new that it's, it's stated for the first time but new in regard to the one who has come to fulfill it namely the Lord Jesus Christ makes all things new he makes even the law which was given to Moses new a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another well that commandment was given in the law of Moses what makes it new because Christ has come and has fulfilled it for us he has kept it perfectly for us and imputes that righteousness to us by faith and has shown us in his life how we are to keep that commandment. And so it is new in that regard. And so the new covenant that God makes with Israel is new because God draws them unto their Savior, their covenant keeper, and brings them into that land. Again, they are married to the land at the time of the millennium. In other words, God's national certificate of divorce was issued when Israel was cast out of her land, away from the presence of God, her husband. <clears throat> Israel was in that sense put away or cast off from the presence, from the presence of her husband. The bill of divorcement does not mean that God made the national covenant of Israel null and void as if they were no longer a covenanted nation while in captivity. If that were the case, how would we possibly account for all God's appeals to Israel, his covenanted people, even though they were cast into captivity? Into taken into Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, land of the Medes, God continues to appeal to them as his covenanted people, even while they are outside of the land. And God actually warned Israel before Moses died that if they turned their backs upon God and the national covenant made with him, that he would drive them away from him and out of the land in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. But even from that land of captivity, they will, be, they will remain God's covenanted people. Even from within that land of captivity, they will still be God's covenant people. Even as Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, and if you read verses 44 through 53, it is on the basis of the covenant which God has made with them that God promises to restore to them as they confess their covenant breaking, their sins, that God will bring them back into their land. Thus it cannot be maintained, dear ones, that a covenanted nation, kingdom, or dominion that has been covenanted unto God can ever be anything other than a covenanted nation, covenanted kingdom, or covenanted dominion unto God in spite of their unfaithfulness. Israel 
is a covenanted nation. And presently, a covenant-breaking nation. And although there is presently a national state of Israel there in the Middle East, she is not yet married to her land because she is not yet married to her land in faith to Jesus Christ, which is what the prophecies of the Old Testament predict. And until that happens, she will not be married to the land. Likewise, let no one think for a moment that Israel's divorce implies that either she or any other covenanted nation can ever cease to be a covenanted nation unto God apart from total annihilation of the nation and all of her posterity. That's the only time that a covenant with a nation would cease is if that nation ceases to exist and all of the posterity die. If there is no longer any of those things, then there is no covenant to be maintained. But otherwise, once a covenanted nation, always a covenanted nation. Second objection, or probably from the sermon today, a third objection. Uh, and I just have two very brief objections uh, that I want to wrap up uh, this part of our series. And this objection simply states, the solemn leading covenant does not bind posterity formally, but only materially, because posterity did not actually swear it. Now, this objection claims that there are no lawful covenants that can be passed on to posterity if posterity did not actually, personally, formally lift up their own hands and utter with their own mouths that lawful covenant. The moral precepts in the covenant do materially bind posterity because they are God's moral commandments. But it is only the commandments in the covenant and not the covenant itself that binds posterity so the objection goes. Therefore, the objection states that it is not the solemn league and covenant that binds posterity since posterity did not personally, formally, actually swear it for themselves. <clears throat> Rather, it is only that which is moral in nature found within the solemn league and covenant that binds posterity. Now, some would say that it is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechisms, the Directory for Public Worship, and the Presbyterian Former Church Government that binds, but not the covenant itself. Others would disagree with that and simply say it is whatever that is lawful within the covenant that binds, but not the covenant itself. Well, this objection, I would submit, makes nonsense out of God's word, for it implies that no covenant is binding that one did not formally and personally make for oneself. What about the covenant of works made with Adam in Genesis chapter 2? Adam was there at the time of the covenant of works, but none of us personally, we were there by nature, but we were not personally there so that we personally swore that covenant of works. Are we bound by the covenant of works? 
Are we condemned by the covenant of works? Absolutely. All those who come from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. What about, furthermore, the covenant Israel made with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9? We find in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, hundreds of years later, that that covenant still bound, the covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites still bound those parties. Because Saul began to slay and slaughter the Gibeonites who were promised in that covenant protection and safety. And God brought plagues upon, famine upon Israel because of that covenant being broken hundreds of years later by those who did not personally swear that covenant at the time of Joshua. Well, what about the national covenant God made with Israel and Israel made with God at Mount Sinai? We find in Deuteronomy 29 verses 14 and 15 that it says very specifically not only those who are present here but those who are not here that is the posterity are bound by this covenant. And in Jeremiah 11.10 those living at the time of Jeremiah hundreds of years after the covenant the national covenant was made with Israel and Israel made with God at Mount Sinai God condemns the generation living at the time of, of uh, Jeremiah as being covenant breakers because they broke the covenant of their forefathers. Now, if they only were obligated because they weren't present at the time the covenant was made, they were only obligated materially to the commandments. Why doesn't it say they broke the commandments of God? Why does it say they broke the covenant of their forefathers? One last uh, objection uh, for uh, this series at this point is this one. King Charles II was forced to take the Solemn League and Covenant and therefore it was not taken willingly. Thus, he could subsequently rescind it. Well, first, let me say a lawful covenant may be lawfully imposed upon a person or upon a nation by a lawful authority. We see in Second Chronicles 34:32 that Josiah imposed a lawful covenant. It says he made the people to stand to it. He imposed it upon them, which is implied by way of censure if they did not stand to it. That was a lawful taking of a covenant if it is a lawful covenant imposed by lawful authority there is an obligation for us to take such a covenant indeed it is a great sin against God to refuse to swear a lawful covenant imposed by lawful authority thus the parliament of Scotland having the authority of the kingdom to impose a lawful covenant upon Charles II Charles II was required to take it. Second, 
even a lawful covenant taken and imposed though by an unlawful authority binds oneself to fulfill the terms of that lawful covenant. Zedekiah, King Zedekiah was forced to swear on behalf of himself in the kingdom of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, a tyrant, that he would not rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what God authorized. This was a part of their duty. God authorized that they not rebel against this tyrant Nebuchadnezzar. So that when Zedekiah broke that covenant with Nebuchadnezzar by seeking the help of the Egyptians, God held Zedekiah guilty of covenant breaking. We find in Ezekiel 17.19. In fact, God says Zedekiah broke my covenant. God even owns the covenant made between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar as his covenant because it was sworn in his name. Thus, even if Charles II was forced to take the solemn league and covenant, he cannot release himself from a lawful covenant on the basis of being forced to take it any more than Zedekiah could have released himself from the covenant because he might say, I was forced to take it. And finally, with regard to this objection, I would simply say, Charles II was not forced to take it. No one held a gun to his head. He voluntarily took it and lied in taking it simply to gain the crown. And that's why he rescinded it later. In closing today, dear ones, I would have you consider with me, just by way of application, that a baptismal covenant is one that is not made personally and intelligently to God by the child, but by the parents on behalf of the child to the effect that the child is bound to trust, love, and serve Christ all the days of his or her life. Now you remember back in the Old Testament, just as circumcision was called the covenant of circumcision, and in Acts 7-8, it actually, Stephen in his sermon, calls it that, the covenant of circumcision, because it was a sign of God's covenant with that child and that child with God. So baptism also may be likewise called the covenant of baptism because it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. The covenant that God makes with us his people and we make with God. Herein is illustrated for us, dear ones, the nature of a binding covenant upon that child. Even if that child never trusts Christ, or refuses to personally own the covenant by which he is bound unto God. It is not that he is not bound by the covenant. It is not that he is not a covenant child or if he becomes an adult. It's not that he's not a covenant adult. He is a covenant breaker. He is breaking the covenant by which he is bound. He is obligated to keep the covenant, but he is living in rebellion against the covenant God has established with him. 
and he with God by way of his parents bringing him to baptism as a child. But so was Israel and so was Judah, a covenant breaker. Israel and Judah were divorced by God and sent away from his presence into captivity. But the Lord even after thousands of years does not forget his covenant. The future restoration of Israel and Judah, dear ones, gives us great hope and comfort for our own covenant breaking, for the covenant breaking of our children, our backslidden children, and for our backslidden covenanted nation. Just as God is able to restore and shall restore Judah and Israel unto himself, so he is able to restore those who are bound by covenant to him back into the fellowship and communion of that gracious covenant. And only he can do so. We cannot do so in our own strength. We cannot keep ourselves in the covenant. We cannot bring ourselves into the covenant. We cannot keep ourselves. We cannot, if we backslide, restore ourselves to the covenant. Only God, by his grace, can accomplish that in our lives. And that's why we continue. We have seen what God does and shall do with Judah and Israel. That's why we continue to appeal to God's covenant and God's covenant mercies with us and our children and our nation. That's why we do not uh, remain silent about God restoring Israel and Judah unto himself, that God would bring these covenanted kingdoms into one kingdom to be a covenanted nation. That's why we don't cease to pray for the nations of the world whom God will bring into covenant with himself as is prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. Dear ones, the final word, and we must always keep this in mind lest we lose hope. The final word has not been uttered in regard to either ourselves, our children, our nation, Israel, Judah, or the nations of the world. For the Lord does not forget covenants made with him. So let us continue, dear ones, to appeal to those covenants when we pray for our children, for ourselves, for our nation, for Israel, Judah, and the the kingdoms and nations of this world. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thou dost humble us today because we are covenant breakers and we look to our covenant keeper, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We appeal unto Thee on the basis of that covenant of grace which Jesus Christ has wrought on our behalf and bringing us into fellowship with thee, having reconciled thyself unto us and, and us unto thyself, and having redeemed us from the curse of the law, and having forgiven us all our trespasses, and having imputed to us the glorious covenant-keeping righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therein we stand, and, O Lord, by thy grace we stand there, and by thy grace we shall stand there.
Lord, help us by thy grace to be faithful covenant uh, keepers. Though we sin, Lord, against the covenant and covenants we have made, may we not be those who turn our backs upon covenants. May we rather come to thee and seek forgiveness for our covenant breaking, for our sinning against thy covenant. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that thou would would uh, encourage us this day, comfort us that of thy, the multitude of thy mercies uh, that are found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask, Lord, uh, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.